0: From Chicago, welcome to 3Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry.
1: It's It was a family business that I worked for. So his son, um, who ran their um, you know sales division, was like, we have to get into 3D printing. It's like cutting-edge technology. Now you can 3D print metal in-house with these like... Ten thousand dollars sintering ovens and, you know, all that kind of. Money. Yeah, not, now we know what we know, <laughs> but you know, all those things that were promised uh, in the world of three uh, D printing in 2016, and uh, and they were just convinced that it was going to be a, a really good complement to, you know, their industry. They'd been around for, um, you know, 40 years at that point, just selling enormous million dollar pieces of machinery.
0: That was Haley Ann Friedman. Ali Ann is a business development and engineering professional with a demonstrated history of working in a variety of industries and specializing in added manufacturing. She has accumulated skills in the application development, material specification, and design for added manufacturing. She currently is a global engineering business manager for 3D printing at M. Holland Company. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Hey, Leanne, thank you so much for joining the episode today. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, I like to start with all my guests and kind of getting down to the roots of, of kind of where you started. So kind of um, maybe as a, a short intro, where'd you grow up, kind of where are you from and, and how did you get kind of on the path towards getting involved in the 3D printing space?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, but um, so I actually grew up in Sacramento, California, uh, where there's not a ton of manufacturing that doesn't have anything to do with wine or almonds. Uh, and so I actually didn't have any exposure to industrial manufacturing growing up. My mom was a teacher. Uh, well, is a teacher. Uh, my dad uh, works for a bread company, uh, and so it was never really presented as an option, uh, you know, for me. So everyone was always telling me to go into medical device sales or you know, anything that had to do with medical, uh, cause you know, California, um, and, uh, after, you know, I had kind of dabbled in a couple different industries and wasn't really finding a place where I fit. Uh, and so I very, very randomly, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go work for an animal shelter <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, try and work with, you know, I love animals. So I'm going to go work with an animal shelter. And I ended up getting a job with a, a no cost, uh, spay and neuter clinic that took me out to Wisconsin, uh, like northern Wisconsin, like middle of nowhere, Northwoods, Wisconsin. And uh, I was like, sure, I'll do this for a year. Why not? Uh, You know, but you can only work for a nonprofit for so long before you have to pay for your bills. Uh, And so I decided to look into something, um, you know, else and got into optical lens manufacturing, which is very boring, Uh, like very, very boring, but very lucrative because people need to see. Uh, And so, you know, that was kind of my reentry into just medical slash general manufacturing. And I really loved the capital equipment portion of that. Um, I really liked working with the people who were, you know, your blue collar uh, manufacturing people. Uh, and so everyone kept telling me you got to go into industrial tool sales or, you know, something in in that regard. So Um, I was looking at a a job that was at, a um, one of the larger, uh, industrial machine tool importers in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, they do OKK and HNK, um, smart machine tools. And, uh, he called me in for the interview and this guy could not have been more stereotypically, uh, like machine tool guy. His name was Dick. And he was like, you know, can you come in right now for an interview? I was like, sure, I'll be there in 10 minutes. You know, Uh, so I showed up and, you know, he's basically yelling at me for the whole interview. And he's like, my son told me to buy these 3D printers or Mark Ford printers. I don't know anything about them. I don't want to know anything about them. You can figure them out. Uh, You can run the department and I was like oh sure how hard can it be and it was like super hard because <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing uh, but I you know I found them so interesting so like very quickly because I'm like I'm a maker at heart I've always been into whatever I can make uh and so I taught myself to design I took apart the printers like a million times and like completely fell in love and then my second week on the job I bought my first 3d printer now I have nine and like no other hobbies uh and all I do is 3d print um but I like completely fell in love with the industry and I fell in love with, uh, the people who need to use it too, like industrial machine tool, um, you know, injection molders, like those are my people. Uh, and so I, I completely fell in love. And so I've been here now for, um, just over five years and I couldn't imagine working anywhere else. So very unconventional path, but you know, I also don't really know anyone who got into 3d printing on purpose. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think a lot of us in the industry ended up uh, on a, a weird path like that.
0: And what was it that, kind of drew like drew you to the industry i mean maybe a little bit deeper question of like what made you stay or like what were was it the people was it the technology was it the the machines even early on and like you mentioned sales a couple of times were you interested in doing kind of sales related things or were you interested in like different parts of the machines the materials cuz it sounds like you've done kind of quite a bit in that in that time time frame was there something that just made you get out of bed and we're excited to kind of go to work on Monday.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'm one of those people who's fortunate enough to be very technical um, and also can talk to people and, um, you know, can do that sales and just um, side of it. And what I kept finding, especially working for that machine tool company is there was this huge disconnect between this like magical 3D printing industry and then the people who needed to use it. And they weren't meshing. Like they weren't able to get the, the message across the machine tool. People wanted it to be a be all end all print, you know, metals on a printer that costs $5,000, you know, just stuff that's just not physically possible, um, today. Uh, and the 3d printing people weren't really sure how to get them to understand, like, you know, here's where it fits, you know, here's how you do all those different things. And I found it really easy to kind of bridge that gap. Cause you know, I can explain it and I can, you know, it's a little bit easier when I tell people, oh, that's a terrible application. Let's look at something else, (laughs) you know, and and have those kinds of, of conversations. And I saw so much potential and I still see so much potential that we're just not doing enough with, especially in like injection molding, see all these applications that are just such a huge pain for the industry. And it's like, wow, we can solve a lot of your problems, not all of them, but we can Solve a lot of them um, as as long as we bridge this communication gap. So it's still what gets me out of bed to talk about three D printing because I know how uh, just capable it is, and I know that there's not a, a thorough enough understanding. So if I can be a part of that adoption and really help further the advancement of the industry, that's I mean I'm super passionate about that.
0: So tell me more about kind of that first interview that you had, and and was it Mark Forged and kind of the conversation with. But Dick, I think he mentioned about like, why, why did they have printers? Like what, what were they doing with it and, and why were they like, what kind of drew that drove them to the point where like, Hey, this is like kind of make it or break it. Like, can we, can we get someone to figure out how to use this and, and, yeah. and actually make it worth our investment?
1: So I think, um, if you, if you're familiar with the company, if you remember the metal X launch, when that first came out, um, that was the time that, uh, that they bought into it. So I think part of what they, what happened was it was the rep that came in, right. You know, that said, Hey, we want to access machine tool companies. Here's what we've got. And now we're going to be able to print stainless steel and you can do it on a system that costs, you know, X amount of dollars. Um, but it's, it was a family business that I worked for. So his son, um, who ran their, um, you know, sales division was like, we have to get into 3d printing. It's like cutting edge technology. Now you can 3d print metal in house with these like $10,000 centering ovens and you know, all that kind of, yeah, not, now we know what we know, <laughs> but you know, all those things that were promised, uh, in the world of, uh, 3d printing in 2016. And, uh, and they were just convinced that it was going to be a, a really good compliment to, uh, you know, their industry, they'd been around for, um, you know, 40 years at that point, just selling enormous million dollar pieces of machinery. Uh, And so I think part of it was a little bit of a snap decision for them. It was just like, okay, it's cool. Let's, you know, and it's only a hundred thousand dollars to become a reseller. Let's just become a reseller. Um, And then I think when they uh, had their apps engineer who had been there for as long as they had existed, he had learned how to use the equipment, like learned Iger and learned how to print on it. But all they were printing was like, Like he didn't even print like Pokemon or something like that. He printed like cones and like, just like the weirdest stuff. And, uh, and they weren't really applying it. So they had had it for two months and tried to give it to their salespeople who were just like, I don't know how to sell this. Like, you know, we can tell people we've got 3D printers, um, but, you know, they didn't really understand how it could be applied. They wanted somebody else to come in and tell them, this is how it should be utilized. And this is how we could, you know, access our customers So it was kind of a weird business decision, but I do now believe, you know, now that I, I work for a larger company that's an injection molding that doesn't do 3d printing as its legacy business. That's like the way to get customers. Uh, It's so much easier than prospecting and, and having to go get somebody from, you know, square one to take somebody who already trusts your opinion and show them, Hey, we understand your process. And this is how it can be applied and how to utilize it. I mean, that's a fantastic business model for 3d printing.
0: And so Let's kind of get into what you're doing now with M Holland. So, kind of what what does for those who aren't familiar with the company, what do you guys do? Kind of what kind of historically is the M Holland business?
1: Yeah, so we've been around for about 70 years. Uh, we're the largest injection molding distribution company in North America. So we sell a lot of pellets. Um, and so when uh, when they were first starting to look at 3D printing, they had a market manager named Todd who, uh, who lives in Ohio and he was you know, part of the Neo cluster and you know, in that little hub of 3D printing in, uh, in the Cleveland area. So we started to go to you know, check out what Owens Corning was up to and what these other companies were doing because it was something that they knew they had to kind of keep an eye on but weren't really sure what to do with And they had signed a distribution agreement with Owens Corning for X-Strands, which you know that's now been sold to BASF, um, but it was just 30% glass-filled nylon and 30% uh, glass-filled polypropylene and um, just spools. So I came in for this interview and they were like, we got this distribution agreement and we're going to sell materials to the 3D printing market. And I was like, ooh, that is not how this works. (laughs) That is not going to, you have two SKUs, that is not going to work to sustain an entire business unit, but also there aren't enough people with printers out there to sustain a business, um, you know, just selling materials. So um, my job was to come in and figure out how we should, as a business, develop uh, a profitable unit where we can, leverage 3D printing technology in whatever ways necessary. So since I started, we've now evolved to, um, you know, we do distribute materials. We've got like our e-commerce website and we have like 350 different SKUs and photopolymers and powders and, you know, all those different things. But we also help people pick printers because most of our customers have no clue what they're doing. You know, they say, we want to get into 3D printing, but what, what should we buy? And that answer is very different from customer to customer. So We'll test printers and say, oh, well, based on what you want to print, we've had good experiences with this one. You know, we think that you should get this one. Here are the accessories we recommend. Um, You know, we don't directly sell them, but we'll recommend them so that we can help them adopt it. Or it doesn't really make sense for you to buy a printer. Why don't you outsource it? We'll print stuff for you. Um, Or we'll introduce you to a partner that also will, you know, um, one of the many, many service bureaus that'll produce parts for you. Um, But our overall goal is additive adoption. So there's so many applications in the injection molding world that are sub 250,000 parts per year uh, that makes sense to produce with 3D printing. And we've seen some of our customers on the smaller custom molding side even lose business um, to service providers in the 3D printing area. So we want to help educate our molders because we do think that they are the future of additive production, Uh, help them get the technology in-house if it does make sense, or at least protect their existing business and transition those applications on behalf of their OEMs um, so that they can utilize the technology in an effective way. So it's a very abstract in the world's longest elevator pitch for what we do. Um, but we do like everything uh, in 3D printing uh, that helps further adoption.
0: And my understanding, and this, this may be totally off, when, when I think of M. Holland from a typical perspective, right? You have like the big polymer market, right? For like a lot of injected molders, they have to buy uh, like train loads of material from basf or Evonik or whoever it may be but m holland is kind of in the middle world the, they'll buy some of that to, and kind of distribute it to molders who may not need as much right like they're kind of in the middle small to mid, medium size production in the kind of grand scheme of things there's still a lot of material but you can kind of partition some of that is is, is that still the case or is that not really what you guys do as much
1: It kind of depends on like the supplier. Some suppliers have these like distribution networks where they can get material places. But um, as we've learned (laughs) over the last several years, logistics are horrible to deal with. Um, getting material from Europe to Mexico or Europe to, you know, Ohio or, you know, wherever it needs to be is a huge challenge. So a majority of the people who work in our business are on the logistics, procurement, um, you know, supply chain side, because we are that supply chain. It's like, how do we get that material from here to here? Material suppliers often just want to focus on making it. So almost all of what we do is in rail cars. Um, you know, day are the smallest quantity that we sell besides sampling. Um, you know, so we'll deal. We have even a, a business unit. that only deals with um, like resale of commodity resins where their sales are like 20 rail cars in a transaction, just like stupid amounts of plastic, Um, which also made it really difficult when I was coming in. And I'm like, we're going to sell a spool (laughs) and it's measured in kgs and it's eaches and we're going to ship it via UPS. (laughs) Um, How how
0: did that that go? I mean, like, because it's a different model, right? Like you you could essentially buy this on Amazon if you wanted for... 50 yeah. bucks, right? Like that's not necessarily like, you, you don't need a PO, you need a credit card versus, versus some of the conventional way that some of this material is sold.
1: That was a journey. We did not have credit card processing when I got there. Um, what we had to do on my, for my first like eight months is we had to take, cause they're kgs of spools, right? Hmm. So we had to take one kg and 2.2 kgs convert those into pounds, then like modify the sense so that it lined up because it was never perfect and process via PO and put it on the back of a truck that was taking pellets to a customer. Oh, it was horrible. It could not have been worse. Uh, and so, and I knew, you know, coming in, it was like, okay, we're going to have to change everything. Uh, and fortunately, you know, with a, being privately held and everything, it was, it probably took me less time than it would have taken if I was working for like a giant conglomerate, um, you know, organization, but we separated into our own business unit so that we could get into our own ERP, you know, CRM management system, because we had to measure things in eaches. and that just, the system could not do that, <laughs> does not do eaches. Uh, and so we transitioned all of that over, you know, so we're an entity within, within m now, but we worked with a warehouse in Ohio that does, um. Uh, that also does order fulfillment on the side of like, they, they sell like t-shirts for other company, you know, they do some of those each things. Uh, and so we own a little corner of their warehouse where we have all of our spools that are lined up, um, that are, you know, skewed out and they are able to fulfill that way. But I mean, that was so hard for the company boxes of powder, easy, super, super easy. That was like, that took like three days, but to get the filaments processed on credit card, that took me like a year and a half. Uh, it was quite a journey.
0: <laughs> and so do you do other mater- other forms of materials? You've mentioned filaments a lot, but do you do powders as well?
1: Yeah. And photopolymers. Um, photopolymers are a little complicated because they have to be refrigerated. They have, they're hazardous expiration dates. If you send them across the borders, nobody knows what they are. Um, and so they just look like, you know, bottles of something dangerous. Um, so those are, you know, those are a special challenge, but the boxes of powder are a lot easier because they are, they're big. Um, and you know, they're a little bit easier for us with our distribution network. So we can host them and we've got like 65 warehousing locations. We can host them in other places besides Ohio. So thank goodness. It makes it a little bit easier.
0: And so is that like powder for SLS, like nylon 11, nylon 12?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we, we carry the ALM family of powders. So anything that ALM uh, EOS has, um, and then we're also expanding now into uh, BASF, um, you know, powders as well. Just, they're such a huge part of our pellets business uh, and we've been distributing their filaments for four years now too. Um, So, I mean, they're, it it couldn't have been a better fit. And then they of course make, um, you know, some MJF and, you know, other, other powders as well.
0: Certainly. And so one of the things that you mentioned when talking to some of the injection molders and and helping them with some of these shorter run projects that may have a good fit for additive, you mentioned kind of that 250,000 part number. Um, I guess what are, in your opinion, and as you're working with these customers, like what are you seeing in terms of where does it make sense to use additive manufacturing versus injection molding? I mean, you have things to consider certainly price and, material availability and surface finish, quantity, all of that. Like what, what are your kind of, uh, framework tenants that, that you use when you're talking to your customers?
1: So, you know, our dream, like the whole additive industry is how do we start a product from inception, you know, for additive, because then we don't have to convert the geometry. Um, You know, so we at least put that idea out there, but that is a much bigger conversation. Like how do we completely change the way that your design engineers and your product development experts develop a product? Um, You know, so there is that piece, but where I've seen the most success, um, especially in the last couple of years is, you know, you walk into some of these mid-sized molders they've got rooms and warehouses full of old nasty molds that are rusty and gross and like they have to hang on to them contractually for a million years uh, so I was at a uh, one of my first customers post-pandemic uh, and I because I had forgotten how big of a problem it was because you don't see it and they had probably like a thousand different products that they had to hang onto these molds for. And they had little plastic baggies with like five parts in them, you know, just in case the OEM said we need 10, um, you know, of something or, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, we looked at all of these different geometries and it was like of those thousand, you know, not all of them can obviously be printed. Um, especially if they're certification reliance, um, or if there's no dual specification opportunities, but there were a lot of geometries where it's like, this is a, foot buckle on a, uh, an exercise bike. (laughs) And so there's no reason we need to hang onto a $40,000 tool, uh, for seven years when on year six, day 364, they're going to come in and say we need 10. Uh, and that's just an insane cost. They have to rebuild that tool. Uh, so huge opportunities there for just, you know, manufacturing the stuff that, you know, they only need a couple thousand or a couple dozen or whatever it is. Um, and that's so much business. Like you know when when we looked at that from a business perspective at first it was like oh but then that's only a couple dozen parts no like that's like hundreds of thousands of parts per plant that end up getting produced but of variable geometries which is the dream like that's the it's like a larger scale of the Invisalign model you know all these different geometries and it, it only makes sense. Um so that's where we've seen a lot of the success uh just because that is such a huge pain point and you know the manufacturing of tools in general for injection molding is just such a high a high costing point, but then labor too, you know, you can't get skilled labor right now. You lose an operator, you're out an operator for six months. Um, so if you're able to either outsource that without having to invest too much in, you know, anything else that makes a huge, huge difference. Um, but of course, then we at least have an easier conversation about how do we design this product for the future Uh, You know, the next time we have to design a product, let's dual spec in a material so that when a polypropylene plant blows up and explodes and we can't get it for four months, we can easily step in and, you know, produce this with 3D printing without skipping a beat or, you know, do all those other things that 3D printing is able to help with.
0: And how much of your job is the, maybe like the qualification part, right? Like there's some convincing of people to to switch, whether that's a mechanical property issue, how long is it gonna last, um, will my customer accept it? Can I get it at different colors? Like wh- what are some of the considerations you see on a day-to-day basis to get over that kind of activation energy to, to go down that direction?
1: Yeah. So the way that I built our group was, you know, and, and it came from my technical background and understanding that this is not a sale that somebody who's just a salesperson can come in and sell 3d. Like it just doesn't work. You have to understand all the nuances and you have to be able to answer the weirdest questions, uh, and answer them like right now. (laughs) Uh, and so our group is built on all engineering, um, you know, people, uh, and anybody who we have brought in who is not technical, it's like the expectation is you're gonna learn to be technical and you're gonna learn really quickly um, because you have to. So we've got um, a material science engineer who does um, material matches and you we'll know, do the side of, okay, we have to look at this application. What does it have to be produced with? If it's a PC PVT, is it possible that we can only use a PVT and use a blue card certified PVT or get the blue card certification and then further that application? It's such a big conversation because selling the idea of 3D printing is what we're all selling. It's how do we actually do this entire process? You can't just say, oh, we've got materials. Good luck. <laughs> um, you know, so we've got a design engineer on staff. Um, we've got applications engineers on staff and all of us. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all applications engineers. We all have to look at geometries and say, this doesn't make sense. And then we have to look at the ROI aspect of it too, of, okay, well, how much are you currently paying for all these elements on the injection molding side? How much is this going to cost outright for you to produce in-house or, you know, outsource? That's like, I'd probably say that's like 85% of what we do. 15% is, you know, looking at all the other solutions and, you know, constantly researching the rest of the industry, but it's it's all evaluation, all qualification, and then, you know, trying to convert and match as best we can.
0: And so with that, I mean... A lot of injection, or my sense, having seen a lot of factory tours and been on site with manufacturers, that the adoption of new technology, whether it's 3D printing or not, is is a big step, right? Like today, you probably don't have operators of your existing equipment, so bringing in new machines that you have to get new operators for is, or train different people for is, is a big challenge. So how much are you seeing in terms of like, hey, we see this part, it's a good opportunity for you to use 3d printing one path is to go buy the printer and do it yourself the other path is finding a service bureau to do it you're going to pay a markup but then you don't own the the equipment if it's a one-off then you don't have to worry about it they'll handle all the design and printing and some of the quality stuff um where's kind of that balance um today
1: so a lot of the Powderbed Fusion, we end up, you know, recommending people go outsourcing because they're huge and, you know, they are a lot more difficult to run than I think people think. Um, and so we actually developed what's called the Transparent Data Program. And so we worked on this with one of our outsourcing partners who, you know, we've been working with since the very beginning. Uh, and they were saying, you know, we, we need to figure out how we can just get more of these production jobs. And we're like, well, if we could give people the data you know, the data that says, here's how much the material costs, even like showing them what the markup is. Cause they don't care. They're happy to pay a markup. Like they're in that same business. They understand the business model. You know, they're not going to say, no, give me, you know, whatever, but to show them, okay, this is how much you're going to pay for material. Here's how much you're you on average going to pay your operator. Here's how many hours the operator had to spend, um, in doing this, um, you know, showing them on the, on the powder bed fusion side, that's where it's most popular. Um, that has helped most of them understand that it is not a good idea to buy a a powder bed fusion printer tomorrow. You need like six to 12 months to qualify and make sure that you've got enough applications um, to justify that because you do need dedicated operator. Uh, and then you need a backup in case that operator gets hit by a bus. You know, you, like, you absolutely need, um, you know, an infrastructure that's lasting and, and supportive to make that work. Um, and so that's been a lot easier of a conversation because, you know, of course, I believe as a super 3D printing nerd with a million of my own printers that everyone's got applications to justify purchases of printers. But on Powderbed Fusion side, it's just, that that initial entry point of $150,000 for the cheapest machine that's reliable in an industrial setting is a lot that is a lot a lot that's a capital purchase um it's a little easier to put an ultimaker on your credit card uh you know so the ultimakers you know photo machines those are easy easy conversations cuz if I've got enough applications for seven FDM printers and two photopolymer printers at my house, you've got enough applications for one Ultimaker in your plant. You just do, um, you know, and so that's a really, really easy conversation. And they're even if they print stupid stuff, I tell them, let your engineers print all the Pokemon they want, because <laughs> at least they're going to learn how to use it. And then you're going to come back and see all the areas that, you know, you can actually apply it. Um, but using that transparent data program was a huge, huge step because we weren't getting effective conversions on powder bed fusion. Cause it was like, yes, it's going to be great. The material properties match the surface finish is great. And we can dye it and we can do all these amazing things and it's going to match. And they're like, okay, but we only have this one job. Sure. Sure. Yeah, so then that that kind of helped get the future ten jobs, and we've actually seen people then end up getting their own pieces of equipment after you know twelve months, and we've even gotten to the point where we've told a customer like, "Hey, you've got like you're spending hundreds of thousands on um, powder bed fusion parts per year. Maybe it's time to get your own machine." And they're like, "No, <laughs> we're good outsourcing it. We don't we need to, We don't need to bring in a piece of equipment. You know, we're we're good doing it this way, and you know whatever works for the business model."
0: How much these days do you hear the about kind of the idea of sustainability within additive is that a a topic that people are interested in i mean i think you can justify it from a couple different options and Mm -hmm. like whether the material sourced sustainably or recycled or using just less material than you would injection molding or something like that is is that something that customers are interested in these days
1: so, I mean, I got a little bit different perspective because I'm neck deep in plastics and, you know, mm-hmm. so my opinion even on how sustainability is structured is very strong because um, plastic is very sustainable if, you know, it's people who aren't. Um, but uh, the the plastic side of the conversation, every single molder that we're talking to, it's a top priority, especially this year. Like, Whatever happens, um, you know, in January where they switched objectives, every single one of our customers said, how can we get more sustainable resins? We want to look at bioplastics. We want to look at all these other things. Um, And when it comes to additive, we've been uh, we've been talking about sustainable materials for a while before people really cared about it. Um, And but what we found is that on the OEM side, they're looking at weird materials like they want algae filled you know, just like the most random things you've ever heard of that I'm like, this is a larger carbon footprint than PLA, but you know, whatever it's, it looks ugly and is marketable. I you know, I understand. Um, but what we actually set up, um, which hasn't been as popular as I thought it was going to be, and it may in the future, but for tooling jigs and fixtures, we took a a post-recycled ABS, um, from a supplier in Indiana, um, who, uh, you know, rechops pellets, turn that into filament and then, you know, uh, applications like pucks for hot filling or, you know, other plastics tools that are used in pretty high quantities, printing those when that, um, that tool retires, which is usually after like a nine month run, taking those parts, re chopping them and then reintroducing them into the re uh, the recycled ABS and bringing it full circle was the most sustainable solution that we were able to, um, you know, to stand behind because, you know, as a plastics company, it's obviously, you know, we care a lot of, we have a whole sustainability division in M. Holland. Um, so we care a lot about sustainability and how we can make sure that we're supporting those initiatives as the world becomes, you know, less plasticized. Um, and so, you know, but also trying to direct people towards what's actually sustainable versus what's just cool and marketing and like green is, you know, also important because sure, if you really want some algae filled PLA, by all means do some algae filled PLA and good luck cleaning your nozzles. But you know, if you actually want to reduce the amount of plastic waste, cause I mean, I, I don't know how much you 3d print on your own. I have so much plastic waste. It's ridiculous. Um, just trash cans full of plastics and they're not marked. So they can't genuinely be recycled. Um, unless you want to pay for those boxes from waste management. Um, you know, those $50 boxes are like this big to go recycle them, but the lack of markings is like a big problem. Uh, so I think that that conversation is going to start happening more and more, especially as sustainability is adopted more significantly on the injection molding side. Uh, You know, that business is booming now, um, you know, and Plastics is trying to find those more sustainable resins. Uh, But I don't think that we're genuinely there yet in additive. It's like, yeah, we use less material. You know, we might have an overall less, uh, you know, less significant carbon footprint. But I think we're so at the stage of like, how do we get people to use us in general before we figure out how, um, you know, to make it a little bit more sustainable. So I think, I think the solutions for them are going to be relatively easy for us to implement. And it might be like regulating, you have to print a marking on your parts or something like that. Um, but yeah, I haven't had too many people ask in a, in a genuine significant way, like, Hey, how do we make this more sustainable?
0: And so switching topics a little bit, um, you're also heavily involved in the Women in 3D Printing group. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about kind of that and kind of what you do with, with the organization?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm involved in uh, in Women in 3D Printing. I'm the national chair. So I joined originally as the ambassador for Chicago. Um, and there's not a ton of 3D printing in Chicago. There's like five companies. Uh, and so we were a reasonably small group. Our first event was like five people and it was mostly men. And, uh, we started, uh, you know, hosting our events and I started getting more and more involved with the organization and it completely boomed. So I joined, um, in 2019, uh, I think 2018 or 2019 when it was still really small. And then, uh, I got, uh, added as the North America chair in 2020, uh, and we just completely blew up. So we went from having like seven chapters and like very, very passive, uh, you know, chapters, uh, and events to having tons of events. We now have like three different chapters in Ohio. Uh, and we've got like ambassadors being added like every other day. Um, and we're starting to really formalize the organization. So it's been a really cool thing to be a part of. So, you know, Kristen is now our, our new president as of, uh, uh, November of last year. Um, so that was a huge transition, uh, but we've been doing a ton with, you know, getting involved with all of the, you know, larger organizations like SPE and SME and, um, you know, rapid and, um, you know, a when we're kind of allowed to, uh, and, you know, all those other, you know, different industry events, uh, and we've just seen so much, uh, so much support and involvement from all the different companies, uh, in the industry that it, it's been a really cool thing to be a part of. So I'm really just like a herder of ambassadors, uh, to try and make sure that people have support and, you know, fix some tech problems where you need it and, you know, answer questions and do things like that. But, um, but I'm very, very passionate about representing the involvement in the industry, uh, because it's, you know, when you go to something like a mug, I always make the joke. It's the only uh, trade show you can go to where there's never a line in the women's bathroom. Uh, if you need some peace and quiet, go to the bathroom and a mug. There's like two people in there, uh, but you know it is such a um, an underrepresented group, uh, you know, within the additive organization and really manufacturing in general. Uh, and so the more that we can continue to inspire women who, you know, may have had an unconventional background like myself, who didn't understand that this was even an option, uh, and, you know, help people who are either in, even in middle school, high school, um, you know, or college understand that this is a totally viable career path, especially if you're creative, artistic, you don't have to have an engineering background, you know, you can learn, you know, all those other areas. Um, that's something that's really important to our organization.
0: And so kind of two final questions um one kind of talking along that kind of workforce of the future kind of what advice do you get to people who are kind of starting down the the path of looking at new careers maybe thinking about additive manufacturing or manufacturing in general anything from your career so far that you've learned and like to share
1: Yeah so I'm I'm one of those people that like when I get in an Uber and somebody's talking about their kid I'm like you should put them in 3D printing uh <laughs> it's a great uh, opportunity um but i think that there's uh there's an element to 3d printing that's so artistic that you know it's yeah it's engineering focused but you know the sculpting elements and surfacing and you know those elements of of design that aren't as commonly used outside of industrial design and in, in traditional manufacturing that are such a legitimate and valuable career path for, you know, people in those, you know, just general arts industries. So I'm a little bit biased because I did go to an arts high school, um, you know, and so there was, we didn't have anything to do with manufacturing, but we've got, we had theater and visual art and, you know, all these other areas. And I'm always talking, I still email with my old principal. I'm like, we should get these people enrolled in some CAD design programs because if they could learn how to do this, it's a lot more lucrative, you know, financially for them um, and a longevity uh, from a career path standpoint to put them in CAD design and industrial design and teach them how to sculpt uh, because sculpting CAD designers are very few and far between. Like you have to teach yourself that or find somebody at a place like mHub or something to teach you how to do those types of things. Cause it's not a very common, um, you know, skill set. and to have a mind that's capable of, um, you know, creating those geometries from scratch. Like that's a, that is a talent. Uh, that's hard to teach. Uh, so I, You know, anybody who's able to do something in the creative realm, you know, like I was a maker from the start. So that's why I was able to really pick it up quite quickly. Uh, I think that that's kind of an underserved area where we should start looking at talent, you know, not just, oh, what MIT grads can we try and recruit into 3D printing? Like, no, let's go look at, um, you know, the trade schools and, you know, the high schools that have arts programs and try and encourage those people to consider this path uh, because it can be so lucrative and it's so very 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 needed um, when we looked for hiring a design engineer it took us like eight months to hire a design engineer because finding somebody who was even just willing to learn to surface from scratch uh, was very very hard um, so that's I know it's a little bit more of an abstract view but um, that that would be my advice for you know furthering our industry development sure.
0: and last question kind of what are you excited about for the rest of 2022
1: I'm really excited for For all these printer companies that have been dragging their feet to launch their next models, Uh, I have, I know that we've got like six new models that are coming out at Rapid and, uh, you know, we, we saw a lot of hardware delays because of COVID and stuff like that. Uh, and I am so excited to see, uh, you know, the, just the new versions of everything. Um, you know, I know that, uh, even on the FDM side, the high-speed extrusion stuff is starting to expand beyond the few manufacturers that we know about. Um, and is getting better. Uh, I'm really excited to see that, and I'm also really excited to see the um, the newer, lower uh, cost SLS and powder bed fusion platforms that are becoming more common in the U.S. Uh, those are starting to make a really big splash. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm thrilled about Rapid. Like I cannot wait to go because I know that there's so much cool stuff that's going to be coming out, um, and I'm just really excited to try it and then see if it can solve some of our customers' problems.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll certainly see you there, and. Thank you for joining the show today and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it and have a good rest of your day.